Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. September, Marjorie, how did we get here so fast? I have no idea. I do love this time of year, though. I do love the kind of feeling of couriering in, thinking about wanting to build a log fire and, you know, all those great big contrasts. And this summer has felt like more of a summer than I think I've ever felt like in Scotland. You know, it's definitely had some sunnier days and it's felt like home to me, weirdly, you know, not necessarily quite as hot, but it's felt more like home. So I'm looking forward for once to log fires. And also I love the kind of trees changing, having worked so hard in the gardens all summer. And of course, we've got Wigtown Book Festival to look forward to at the end of the month yeah so a couple of our groups will be going to that it's a special place anyway but during the festival there's a real buzz about the town and a real sense of everyone mucking in to make a success which i just love so our theme this month is lost and found and we have a story from lynn g who's one of our volunteer lead readers so very grateful to lynn i think you're going to start aren't you marjorie yeah so this story is called tortoise If you're walking up the mound alongside Princess Street Gardens, just before you reach the railway, look down through the railings to your right. You'll discover a small memorial garden hidden in a dark and gloomy hollow. You've probably passed this point many times, but your gaze usually meanders upwards between the dramatic skyline of the old town and the castle perched on its craggy throne. I always notice that somber little garden, however, because it reminds me of a cool spring day in the 60s and a tortoise called Hamish. It was a Saturday, and my father had taken my sister Catherine and me into town to buy new shoes. I didn't enjoy these shopping expeditions because I knew I would inevitably end up with sensible brown lace-ups and not the dainty pointed toe styles I coveted. Despite my pleas, the ghastly shoes were bought, and I remember sulking as I lugged the offending purchase along Prince's Street. When we reached the entrance to the gardens, my father told Catherine and me to amuse ourselves while he went off to a bookshop. This wasn't cruel abandonment as it might be interpreted today, because at the time children were given a greater degree of freedom and trust. My sister and I were delighted. Our father always spent ages choosing books, an inexplicably boring activity to us. We were warned not to talk to strangers, and he would meet us in an hour back at the main gate. We had been promised afternoon tea at Mackey's on Princess Street, the highlight being that rarest of treats, Coca-Cola. Catherine and I wandered down to the memorial garden, our secret, out-of-the-way place where we thought nobody ever went. We dumped our packages on a bench, then played chasey for a while, after which we sat down again to get our breath back. Our solitude was soon disturbed by the appearance of three other children, and I remember feeling unnerved as these intruders burst into the space. There was an older girl, who seemed very grown up, but was probably only about twelve, and two younger children, probably her siblings. She was dressed in what looked like her mother's skirt, as it almost reached her ankles and was fastened at the waist with a safety pin. Her jumper was ragged and rolled up at the front to accommodate something she was concealing from the other two. The younger girl had long, scraggly hair and was wearing a thin summer dress and plastic sandals without socks. Her brother, who could only have been three or four, was crying. 
and trying to push in front of her. Without warning, she grabbed him and threw him down onto the grass. He landed with a thud and began to howl even more loudly. This prompted the older girl to smack her sister hard across the head. Don't you hit me, Shelley, you bloody bastard, she screamed. Don't you swear at me or you'll get fucking battered, threatened Shelley. I'd heard words like that before, from drunk men outside Jock's Lodge pub, but I felt my sister stiffen as she shuffled up beside me. I knew we ought to leave, but instead we sat mesmerized as the scene unfolded. The boy got up, wiped his face with his sleeve, and pulled at Shelley's sleeve. Let me see it. I want to see it. I'll tell ma'am if you don't let me see it. And I'll tell her you hit me, added the younger girl. Shut up, replied Shelley. Both of you shut up. You'll say nothing unless you both bloody shut up. The two fell silent as Shelley slowly produced a large tortoise from beneath her jumper. Don't you do nothing to make it feart, instructed Shelley, as she carefully placed the creature down on the grass. I thought the tortoise must be dead. It was motionless, like a lump of rock, with its head, legs, and tail retracted deep inside its shell and its underside pulled up like a drawbridge. It was almost indistinguishable from the other stones nestling in the long grass. The children crouched down quietly, staring at their immobile pet. When's it going to come out, Shelley? When can I see it? asked the boy, tapping its shell with a stick. Leave it. Just shut up and wait, was the reply. At this point, Catherine's curiosity relinquished any previous unease, and she stood up to get a better view. Shelley caught sight of her. Hey, you girls, want to come and see the tortoise? The two younger children turned round, looked us up and down and sniggered, making me suddenly aware of our smart kilts and matching blazers. My sister, more adventurous than me, nodded and made her way over. I followed tentatively, preferring we'd remained invisible. I pulled Catherine back to a comfortable distance and we stood gazing at the tortoise. What do you call it? I asked, trying to make conversation. Hamish, whispered the younger girl. You have to be quiet and you'll come out to shell. For ages, nothing seemed to happen until inch by inch, a small wrinkled head began to poke hesitantly out of the shell. The tortoise blinked, his black beady eyes unaccustomed to daylight. Almost simultaneously, its claws appeared, and then four leathery legs curled out onto the ground, heaving the creature upwards as it began to take slow and decisive steps. The boy squealed excitedly and lunged towards the tortoise, which, in a flash, retreated back into its shell. The squabbling began again, and this time it was Shelley who took her brother and shoved him back down onto the grass. He got up shouting and sobbing and ran out of the garden. The two girls went after him, quite forgetting Hamish, who was by now plodding purposefully across the glass into the shelter of the flower beds. My sister and I, afraid of getting further involved in the fracas, retreated back to our bench. We sat and waited for the children to return. By now, Hamish had discovered a clump of pansies on which he was contentedly gorging himself. He was in no hurry to escape. We waited and waited. 
Should we stop there? Yeah, let's stop there. How old do you think the girls are in this story? Um, eight and ten, because they think the older girl seems grown up. And then there's the three children. It's a good piece of writing because we sit down on the bench with the speaker and watch what's unfolding. And I'm fascinated by them too. I want to see what's going to happen next. Mothering in a childish way by Shelley, I think is really well observed and written. She's sort of trying to be the elder mother figure, but at the same time, she's not quite managing to do it. Shaking her brother and shoving him on the grass. Well, I didn't even necessarily think of it as mothering. I was just thinking, I remember the frustration of younger people, you know, getting in the way of something you wanted to happen. So I could imagine if my younger cousins were around, for example, and their impatience might delay the tortoise coming out. And I would have found that really frustrating, I think. You know, she definitely doesn't have the motherly, like, let's just all sit around and watch. Shut up and sit down. Be quiet. You know, so... The one thing I wanted to say too is I've been doing a little work with the National Library. I know this sounds like a non sequitur, but it isn't. On the Geddes Gardens in Edinburgh and doing some workshops with them on these tiny secret gardens. I think there's 37 or 39 of them that are all often like the size of a, you know, where a, a building might have stood or a corner, a disused corner. And I think even if you know where to look, or even if you look up online, um, the Geddes Garden maps, it gives you a map of the old town where Geddes, if you don't know anything about him, go find him because it's just fascinating. But he saved the old town, which was due for pulling down a lot of it and created these tiny little postage stamp gardens, which, I, you know, I'm not sure if this is one of them, but Johnson Terrace is one and they're all up and around the castle and along the, the old town. And if you know where to look, you'll find yourself in a tiny enclosed green space. So as soon as we were reading the story, I was thinking, I wonder which of these secret Gettys Gardens this is. Uh-huh. I see. I thought this was the memorial. The, there's a little war memorial. If your f- Princess Street is behind you on the left hand side, that's sort of the opposite end of the garden from the fountain. And there's a tiny little memorial there. But I didn't know it was enclosed. So that's what confused me. Because this definitely feels like a sort of secret enclosed garden. But it certainly made me want to go and have a wonder and try and find out exactly where this story is written. Yeah, and it may, I think the enclosed nature of it made me think of all the little secret Geddes gardens. But maybe it's the one that gave Geddes the idea. I don't know. And it, I guess it depends on which war the memorial's for. Because Geddes was creating these gardens at the turn of the 1800s into the 1900s. Shall I read on? Yeah, I do. A lady came along and sat on a bench facing us. She was wearing a red hat and was accompanied by a white poodle with a diamond-studded collar and lead. Its coat was cut in the shape of a lion with a fluffy front and a big pom-pom on the end of its tail. She had just begun to look at a magazine when the dog having noticed the tortoise, started sniffing and pulling on its lead. The lady looked up and seeing Hamish, who was now feasting on a patch of nasturtiums, called over to us. You girls over there, is that your tortoise? You can't let it eat the flowers like that. I went over and picked Hamish up and tried to explain the whole story and how we were waiting for the owners to return. I don't think she believed me. I called Catherine over, hoping she would back me up, but all she did was crouch down and stroke the poodle. Hamish was heavy and struggling in my hands, and his legs were clawing desperately in the air. I think you'd better go and find those children and give them back their tortoise, she said quite sternly. I handed Hamish to my sister, and we grabbed our bags 
and hurriedly left the memorial garden. We climbed up the hill to the main gate where my father was already waiting. He was rather annoyed, especially when he saw what my sister was carrying. I repeated the story of why we had the tortoise and was told to go and look for the children who were his owners. I wandered back down the steps. I know I didn't look very hard, but there was no sign of them anywhere. And I was coming round to the idea that we had saved Hamish from imminent danger and should take him home. It took a long time to persuade my father that this was a good idea. And only after Catherine started to cry because she thought Hamish would just get lost in Prince's Street Gardens did he relent. My father warned there would be no outing to Mackey's now as you couldn't take a tortoise into a restaurant. But this was no deterrent. I even offered to wear my horrible new shoes home so that Hamish could travel safely home on the bus in the empty box. And so Hamish the tortoise came to live in our back garden for a number of years. He had a charmed life, strolling about, constantly feeding on my mother's marigolds and lettuces. His shell was rubbed with olive oil, and as tortoises go, he was quite shiny and dashing. He also became quite friendly and liked to be stroked under his chin. Each winter, Hamish hibernated in a cupboard, in the original shoebox filled with straw, until one spring he didn't wake up at all and we had to bury him in a little plot beside the shed. I didn't think the children were going to leave that tortoise there. I thought they'd just gone off and would come back for it. And I also didn't think the um, narrator and sister would be allowed to take the tortoise home. I just think about trying to convince a parent to have a pet. Usually it takes a lot of lobbying, and certainly not on the spot. Did you ever try and convince your parents you should have a pet of this Mm. nature? Or any nature, really? Not really. I am a, I'm not a massive animal person. But my children did try and convince me that they should be allowed to have a dog, which I know would just mean I ended up with a dog. So what I suggested to them was that they join the website called Borrow My Doggy, which is one where you can find dogs that belong to owners who are struggling for whatever reason, work commitments or becoming elderly to walk their dogs as regularly as they would like to. And you can sign up to be almost a dog foster parent and and go and visit a dog every week and take it for a walk or however frequently you agree. And so my bargain with the children was if they signed up to borrow my doggy and they each walked a dog once a week for six months, then we could have a conversation. So they signed up and I still get the emails to this day. And how many dogs did they walk? Zero. <laughs> and so, never, none of them ever. And then, and then when I said, so what happened? They were like, oh, we're just too busy. I rest my case. Yeah, well, we've been the same with the cats. But to be fair to my crew, I've only just got them in lockdown. I mean, they'd always wanted a pet and they wanted a dog. But I said, no chance. Because dogs, you can't leave a dog. And, you know, before we realized how long we were going to be in our houses for COVID, you know, we used to go away for open book quite a lot for work. And then, you know, I was thinking about going to the States and I just, you can't leave a dog in the house. You have to kennel it. And I don't have the pennies for that. So I said, well, let's try cat, shall we? Oh yes, we'll feed it and we'll do the kitty litter and all that. Nope, they don't do any of that, but they do love the cats, you know, so because I ridiculously am allergic to cats. So I've got this animal, two of them, in, in fact, in the house that I can't pet because it makes my face 
swell up. But to be fair to the children, they do love them and carry them about and harass them and let them sleep on their beds. And even my oldest, who's 21 now, who came home for the first time in a long time, went upstairs, dropped his bags and came back downstairs yesterday holding a cat. So I thought, well, there you are. They do like them. But I'm not sure I would want a tortoise. Pretty low maintenance, I think. You know, just shove them in the garden and make sure you close the gate. And that's about it. I know. My children used to say, please, can we have a fish? And I was thinking, what's the point of a fish? Like, it's never going to interact with you, you know. And I don't think a tortoise will either, really. I guess my sense is that for pets, you want something that's going to interact with you, which makes me think there's something about are pet owners selfish? I don't know. But, you know, we definitely want things that are going to have interaction with us. I'm not sure fish and tortoises count. But then I've never had a tortoise as a pet. So if you're listening and feel very defensive about tortoises as pets, you know, let us know. Shall we look at the poem? Yeah, let's look at the poem. Um, This is a poem of John Burnside's from his book, All One Breath. And it fits the lost and found theme, but it's quite different from the story. Quite a long narrative poem, which isn't like us, but I think it doesn't get much better on poetry and lost and found than this one. And the title is On the Vanishing of My Sister, Aged 3, 1965. They saw her last in our garden of stones and willows. A few bright twigs and pebbles glazed with rain, and here and there, amidst the dirt and gravel, a slick of leaf and milkstone, beautiful for one long moment in the changing light. Then she was gone. My mother had looked away for a matter of seconds. She said this over and over as if its logic could undo the wildness of a universe that stayed predictable for years, then carried off a youngest daughter. My father was in the room at the back of our prefab, watching the new TV, the announcer excited, gold cup day, and Arkle romping home by 20 lengths. Maybe we have to look back to see that we have all the makings of bliss. The first spring light, the trees along the farm road thick with song, and surely it was this that drew her out to walk into the big, wide world, astonished, suddenly at home no matter where she was. It seems when they found her, she wasn't the least bit scared. An hour passed, then another. My mother waited while our friends and neighbors came and went, my father running out to search, then back again, taking her once in his arms and trying vainly to reassure her, she in her apron, dusted with icing and flour, and he too self-contained, too rudely male, more awkward now than when he knew her first, a marriage come between them, all those years of good intent and blithe misunderstanding. It was Tom Dow who brought her home, Tears in his eyes, the boy we had always known as the local bully, suddenly finding himself heroic. And when they brought her in and sat her down, we gathered to stand in the light of her, life and death inscribed in the blue of her eyes, and the sweet confusion of rescue, never having been endangered. 
She's married now, and Tom is married too, and I, like my father, strayed into discontent, not being what was wanted, strange to myself and wishing all the time that I was lost, out at the end of winter, turning away to where the dark begins, far in the trees, darkness and recent cold and the sense of another far in the trees, where no one pretends I belong. I think the thing that strikes me first about this is just the detail and the observation. The tiny little, you know, the the apron dusted with icing and flour and Arkel remembering that the name of the horse and that it came home by 20 lengths. And there's a real sense of a sort of freeze frame of a moment in the description. Yeah, and we're right there with them waiting. But a note that he does that thing, which I think often good writing about moments of crisis does, which is to tell us the end in the middle. And so we stop worrying that she's lost forever. You know, sort of halfway through the poem, he says, or it says, it seems when they found her, she wasn't the least bit scared. So now we know she's found. And then from there on, the poem becomes about everybody else. And in fact, you know, although the poem feels like it's about the loss and then the finding of his sister, I don't think it is by the end of the poem we recognize that it's about him being lost and wishing he could find himself somewhere else. So at that moment, we know she's found. And then the poem becomes about his parents' responses. You know, it slows down and his mother waiting in the kitchen and his father trying to console her. And in that moment, you learn something about their relationship as well. And then this boy, Tom Dow, who, you know, those moments that can rescue you because you, the world sees you in a different way. And then, of course, it's about himself as well. And it does make me think of those moments where, you, you know, the, the entire community can change their view of a person because of something in either direction, really, the kind of um, fragility of that. I mean, the strength of a whole community thinking you're bad or good, but also the fragility of that. There's a real feeling of, I wouldn't categorize it as manipulation, but you, I did really feel like in writing this, the poet was in control of my responses so like it was building the tension and the anxiety um in the first half and then just wiped them out by saying she wasn't scared and they found her and then you start worrying about the mother and father and then you start thinking about tom dow and then finally you end up feeling a bit worried and and sorry for the writer so the, the real sense of my sort of emotional responses being controlled which i think is indicative of a really good piece of writing Yeah, it's almost like we're holding our breath, you know, because the title doesn't tell us whether she's found. He does a different thing because we know that she's vanished from the title. And yet there are such moments of beauty in that first half, you know, so it's not like, come on, come on, come on. It's like, you know, we're in the woods, we're in that the lanes are beautiful and filled with song. You know, the, the trees along the farm are thick with song, you know, suddenly we're in this kind of blissful moment. So as you say, it's not manipulative as much as acknowledging that this terrible thing is happening during such a moment of real beauty or almost bliss. And and that's what he says. Perhaps we have to look back and see we have all the makings of bliss. Because it's quite often, you know, what he's saying for me in that moment is, it's the moment just before tragedy. You know, when tragedy strikes, we realize what we had and didn't take account of. For me as well, that sense of no matter what personal tragedy we're going through, 
whatever intensity we have in a particular given moment in our life, the world is still going on and things are still growing and trees are, the light is still changing and that contrast of, of you being at the centre of your world and then realising that that's just, you're just a tiny drop in the ocean, to use a cliche. And I think maybe that we know that when, you know, when people pass away that are close to us, the response is, how can the world keep moving in the ways it always has? And I suppose that's also part of the repair. But I know that there is always that feeling of astonishment when the sun rises the next morning and the world is continuing in large part without us. And I, I would say I had a really similar experience when each of the children were born that you're so focused and intense in this bubble for the period of time or whatever, if, if you have a partner around that partner's at home and it's quite a sort of, I would can only describe it as a bubble. But then when you emerge and, you know, the, go back to work or whatever, you kind of look around and realise that for the last two weeks or whatever, <laughs> the world has still been turning and your world might have stopped momentarily. And there are a few moments in our lives that allow us that sort of quality of concentration or disassociation maybe, and certainly death is one of them. And, and even tragedy and worry. Whereas you say the birth of a child or, you know, but there are, you could probably count them on one hand. What's amazing to me is that having recognised that and having this turned out turning out well, that he's still reflecting on it wasn't enough to change, you know, because often these experiences do change people. Having said on, you know, the first half of the poem that we have all the makings of bliss, the second half of the poem acknowledges that he still wishes to disappear. And maybe that's his form of bliss, but it doesn't feel like it had that sort of aha moment of we've got to go out and enjoy this, even the reflection on it. Yeah, I, I'm interested. You think that moments like this do make people change? Because I wonder if they make people change for a short time. And what he's getting at is that there might have been a moment where there was the intention to find bliss or change, but actually, after a while, the old habits kick in and the same same old daily routine. And more often than not, we don't learn and we don't change. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on the person. You know, I do know people in my family that have been dealt with real tragedy or difficulty and they have changed you know and it's um they're remarkably different humans more positive and more grateful and more light i would say about them maybe understanding that you're they're holding on less tightly um in some way or that they have less control maybe that's an acknowledgement of less control about where we end up than others in the family might but this feels like even though it's a big long poem it's only a few hours of someone's day rather than, you know, an illness that might have taken a year or two to recover from or because I do, I think people who've recovered from a, from cancer, for example, or a serious injury, it does change them. Um, in my experience, it does change so much about them um, and the way that they see every day and approach every day because you have to make a decision, you know, I think probably in how you manage the future. It doesn't feel though that that experience has brought the poet to that sense of change. No. And maybe all it's done is acknowledge who he is and the way he observed it. And what's interesting is too that at the end of the poem, he is wishing for a walk into a wood, a dark wood where no one pretends he belongs. And of course, the speaker in the poem isn't engaged in the act of trying to find his sister, is also observing, doesn't belong to the scene, is standing on the outside watching. And so it really chimes with what happens at the end of the poem, which is acknowledging that place in the world as observer and as a teller of the story, which of course he's, you know, many years later telling the story, but it feels like even within the story, he is the observer 
And so that is the lost and found to me, that kind of sense of being outside the circle and maybe just acknowledging your place in it. And for me, there's a real sense of sadness when at near the end of the poem where he wants to walk, where the darkness begins, fire in the trees, darkness and recent cold and the sense of another. You know, it's almost a, a searching or a wishing that there's somebody else out there like him. Yeah, I don't. I didn't read it that way at all. But it, it, I think of it. I think of it as the other side. You know that there that, that that sort of fragility between life and death or the dark. You know, I chose this poem because of it being about a child as much as anything. But there is one of my favorite lines of his is about being neither lost nor found, but somewhere in between, and asking forgiveness from his partner for not being the man he seems, neither lost nor found, but somewhere in between. So I think it's a theme that runs through his work about walking that boundary between life as we know it and the kind of formality really of what we do, what all of us do all day long and what's pulling the writer into darkness or or the other side in some way. And you can decide what that means for yourself. And the poem I'm thinking about is about walking on the outside of a fair grounds and watching people enjoy it. So being again between that observer and between what's actually happening and something behind him, which I think you know, we all get to decide what that is. I definitely find you have to be in a resilient mood to read his work because it can be quite um, illuminating in a way that makes you turn to sort of think about your own response to things. And sometimes that's not what you're searching for in a poem. But he, but he manages to tell his stories while doing it, you know, which I think is, which is miraculous and probably why I come back to his poetry over and over again, because he pulls me in with the story and then tells me something I didn't realize I needed to know. Thank you, John, for quickly agreeing for us to read um, that poem with such grace. I think that's all from us this time round. We look forward to being in your ears next time and do let us know about your own lost and found stories. We really enjoy hearing from people uh, responding to our discussions in our podcast.